I think the greatest impact of the school is um, it's enormous, but it's not very visible. And it's really our tens of thousands of alumni uh, in all kinds of roles in business and government and nonprofits and academic organizations. Um, you know, people who lead and do their jobs with integrity, who use their Michigan education to, of course, do well for themselves in terms of um, responsibility and leadership and income. But I also really like to think that the experience they had at the University of Michigan with our faculty, with their student colleagues, has made them really good uh, citizens of the business world and the world overall. So I, I would point to our tens of thousands of alumni as our greatest impact. Welcome back to the Business and Society podcast. I'm your host, JT Godfrey. On today's very special centennial-focused episode, we welcome three experts to discuss the history of the Ross School of Business and the changes in business school education they witnessed during their historic careers. First, we have George Seidel. George is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration and Professor Emeritus of Business Law at the University of Michigan. George has served on several boards of directors and is Associate Dean at the Ross School of Business, where he headed the Executive Education Center. Welcome to the podcast, George. Thank you, JT. Great to be here. We also have Tom Kinnear. Tom is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration, Marketing, and Entrepreneurial Studies, and founding executive director of the Samuel Zell and Robert H. Lurie Institute for Entrepreneurial Studies. He formerly served as Senior Associate Dean of the Ross School of Business, Vice President for Development, and Executive Officer for the University of Michigan. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Last but not least, we have Joe White. Joe is President Emeritus of the University of Illinois and Professor Emeritus of Business at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He is Dean Emeritus of the Ross School of Business and Professor Emeritus of Business Administration at the University of Michigan, where he also served as Interim President. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. Let's get started. We'll start with an easy one. I would like each of you to describe the Ross School of Business in one word. Feel free to elaborate if you'd like. But what is one word that really comes to mind when you think of your tenures and connections to Ross? I would choose the term broad-gauged. The reason I choose that is that uh, I think the Ross School of Business is more integrated into the rest of the university than are many business schools with which we compete. This is reflected in uh, joint degree programs, joint research programs, a lot of involvement with other professional schools like engineering and uh, uh, environmental studies and so on. So I would choose the term broad gauge. And I'd like to follow up on that. Uh, my word is entrepreneurial, which I think is related to broad gauged because it's our entrepreneurial spirit that enables us to be broad gauged. And by entrepreneurial, I mean that I think we've been able to accomplish a lot with limited resources. Our resources are very generous as a result of our alumni, but compared with our top competitors, the Stanfords and the Harvards of the world, uh, our resources are, are more limited. And I think we've, we've done a lot over the years to leverage those resources. And uh, that is caused by an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I'm going to add to all of that too. I say my word is innovative. 
And because entrepreneurship is a great way to think about it, but innovative in the sense of actually doing things. Uh, the creation of MAP under Joe's leadership, the creation of the Zellery Institute, which Joe was still dean at the time, uh, the creation of uh, all sorts of um, executive education courses when I was involved with it and George was leading it. Uh, we had to be smarter, more innovative, quicker. And uh, of course, uh, we created the first student venture fund within Ross, all of those kinds of things. They were copied by a lot of people, so we had to continue to be innovative. And I think that captures the spirit that I remember at Ross anyway. Tom, when you mentioned uh, those initiatives led by Joe, uh, it brought to mind a phrase that we used often when Joe was our leader, and that was, there was a presumption of yes. Uh, when somebody developed a new idea, a new program or, or whatever, when you went to Joe, the presumption was, uh, let's try it. And that was the spirit that I think caused us to be very entrepreneurial. The willingness to take on new and walk away from it if it didn't work and improve it if it was going to be better, et cetera, et cetera. All part of the innovative, entrepreneurial, and broad-based, God-based spirit, I think, that defines Ross. One of my favorite moments was when I went to a Harvard Business School reunion in about 2005. It was 15 years after we've launched MAP, you know, and got students out into uh, doing project work. And the dean of the Harvard Business School probably stood in front of the alumni and told them that once again, the Harvard Business School was in the lead. They were introducing projects, field projects, in which, which would be required for all students 15 years after we did it at Michigan. I liked our leadership. Yeah, I would say the whole theme of uh, that kind of action learning was pervasive of the Zillary Institute. Too. We didn't have a course where the students weren't actually practicing what it meant to be a real entrepreneur. And, and one of my memories of the presumption of yes was I went to the faculty lounge one afternoon, one of our old faculty members by the name of Leroux Hosmer was there. And Leroux um, was sort of complaining. He said, we don't have a forum for bringing all the faculty together to share our research interests. And he said, I would be willing to fund a forum and so, so I said, LaRue, uh, how much would you contribute to that? He said, oh, I, I'd contribute $10,000 a year. Well, I immediately left the faculty lounge, went right to Joe's office. And I said, Joe, LaRue has made this offer. Can we follow through? And within 15 minutes, we had the Hosmer luncheon series. <laughs> no committees, no debate, no discussion. Uh, 15 minutes of program that has endured for, I don't know, a couple decades now. And it's been one of the highlights of the Ross Business School. Absolutely. Yeah. As someone who has enjoyed many a lunch at the Hosmer Lecture Series, I, I thank your dedicated work. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny, another funny uh, presumption of yes story. So, you know, once you tell students that there's a presumption of yes, they come forth with all kinds of wants and needs and ideas and so on. One of them when I was dean was that very small number of students were adamant that the library needed to be open all night. And the librarians, uh, you know, were not in favor of that. So I said to the librarians, well, under presumption of yes, we can't just say no, forget about it. So I said, how about if you keep the library open for two weeks at night and keep a staffer there and every hour on the hour, the staffer is going to keep a written census of how many students are present. And so they did that. And then I later gathered, gathered the students in my office. And I said, 
I want to show you the logs here between midnight and 6 a.m. The hourly numbers were like one, one, zero, 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 <laughs> night after night. And so even though there was a presumption of yes, we didn't always say yes. The willingness to try. Well, yeah. the willingness to try and be data-driven as to whether things work or not. I mean, that's uh, right. We yep, had a whole right. bunch of things in exec ed and Zellery where we tried and didn't work out so well, but we moved on into other new ideas. I think that's just the presumption of the way things work. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you all for sharing. And uh, another word that comes to mind is is impact. And that's the focus of the Ross Centennial Celebration. Throughout its 100 years of operations as a business school, Michigan Ross has been a transformational force for a number of facets of higher education, business and society. From your perspectives, what have been some of the most impactful contributions Ross has made? I think we have to put it in perspective vis-a-vis -vis what Ross was in the beginnings, what business schools were in the beginnings. They were very descriptive organizations. They were very institutional structured. And Ross was fundamentally there to create future CPAs. There were other disciplines with, uh, you know, that was Peyton uh, and uh there were other disciplines uh, with Phelps and marketing and Waterman and finance that were important, but it was all very institutional structured. And it, it was the advent of the late 50s, early 60s with the Ford Foundation pressing business schools to be something more than lectures of descriptive things. And uh, other than Joe and my alma mater, which had tried to be not field-based, but case-based for a long time. And I think there was a real transition at Ross to becoming uh, and this is the, one of the contributions, I'm much more institutional in the sense of data-driven institutional structures, behavioral analyses. The first behavioral person in marketing, for example, was at Michigan. He was a rebel and it was caused difficulty for him. Uh, in the end, he, but he sowed the seed and Ross again was open to things that were quite different than before. So I think Ross's willingness to engage with more mathematical, quantitative, bring in other disciplines in sociology, psychology, um, all the behavioral sciences to improve the nature of what we taught in the courses and what we did in our research. And I think uh, we were one of the leaders in making all that happen, which is, in my view, one of the great contributions of Ross to become the more analytical, behavioral, quantitative, uh, but practical. A lot of the schools went off the deep end on that and left out the word practical. Uh, the ability to integrate all of those to me is one of the great contributions of for business education. And just to follow up on what Tom said, when I think of people who um, were practical and brought theory to practice, I, I think of a few individuals like Bill Payton, uh, the AICPA named him the accounting educator of the century of the 20th century because of his contributions to accounting and accounting education. Paul McCracken uh, influenced public policy during the regimes of six presidents from Eisenhower to Reagan. He had the ear of the presidents and, and very influential in public policy. C.K. Prahalad uh, is on everybody's list. Uh, his key concepts, core competence, co-creation, strategic intent, uh, fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, had a huge influence in a number of, of spheres in the corporate world. And um, Thinkers 50 uh, twice named him the most influential thinker in the world, ahead of people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Malcolm Gladwell and others. 
So um, just to put a, a footnote on what Tom said, um, I, I think of individuals who illustrate um, what Tom was talking about, like Peyton, McCracken, and Prahalat. And many more since then who are definitely the new generations of people shaking the trees in the same similar sorts of ways. Yeah. I think the greatest impact of the school is um, it's enormous, but it's not very visible. And it's really our tens of thousands of alumni uh, in all kinds of roles in business and government and nonprofits and academic organizations. Um, you know, people who lead and do their jobs with integrity, who use their Michigan education to, of course, do well for themselves in terms of uh, responsibility and leadership and income. But I also really like to think that the experience they had at the University of Michigan with our faculty, with their student colleagues, has made them really good uh, citizens of the business world and the world overall. So I, I would point to our tens of thousands of alumni as our greatest impact. If I may tag on to Joe for one second, I, I wrote words down, what are our students like? And one I wrote down is, generally speaking, hardworking people who are doers. They just don't want to talk about it. They want to go out and do things who, who don't start their post-graduation world as an entitled view that somehow they've They've already earned top jobs when they haven't proven it. I mean, they're they're really well grounded, and I think that's a lot to do with how the faculty and the map work and the all the other field works that go on, and faculty who don't tolerate them feeling entitled. Yeah, I love that point, Tom. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. You, you sort of mentioned it uh, a little bit with with I believe it's Bill Payton or Patton. Um, Payton, 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 Bill Payton. I was, I was getting my generals and my accounting professors mixed up then. <laughs> There was a certain similarity. <laughs> so most of us didn't overlap when he was teaching, but we, the three of us did meet him. And uh, he was a force to be reckoned with. I actually recently wrote an article on, on Bill Payton's kind of legacy at Ross for our centennial. And, and one of the things that we noted is that during his tenure, that, that shift in research from a more practitioner focus to more mathematical and data-driven added on to that kind of practitioner-focused. That would have been at the end of his career, I think, because that was an advent of the late 50s, 60s. And uh, he was, certainly was probably the first analytical accountant anybody ever heard of. Right. From a research standpoint, Michigan Ross professors have been at the forefront of new developments and, and cutting-edge contributions. How has academic research changed throughout your careers? And are there any new uh, or any overarching trends you've seen? Well, what I'd say about academic research is, um, and, and perhaps this is uh, blasphemous, but I always felt this as a dean and president, you have to start with the understanding that there's going to be a lot of waste in the research effort. You know, you're going to devote a lot of, fa of the faculty resource in a top quality university and business school to the faculty doing research. That's why they teach three courses instead of six courses. It frees up time for them to do research. But you know, a lot of research is a needle in a haystack. It takes a lot of searching to find that needle. That's the wasteful part of it. And I think as a leader in such an organization, you have to be philosophical about that and also 
understand that the very process of research itself, whatever the result, really helps keep faculty intellectually sharp and knowledgeable about their fields and understanding the new developments in their field so they can take that to the students and the classroom. Having said that, you know, George identified some faculty and there were many more uh, who really changed the concepts, the thinking, the methodologies and the vocabulary of both faculty and people in the world of business. They're the ones who found the needle and it made a, a very big difference. So I, I've always been proud of being involved in research universities. I believe deeply in their mission. And um, uh, and the reason is that, that it is research that keeps faculty really intellectually sharp, knowledgeable, and positions them to make big, big contributions occasionally. Now, my, my comment to add on to that would be having edited two academic journals uh, that most fields have now split into sub, if you think of journals that are being more specific to specific areas, uh, whether it's public in marketing, you can talk about public policy. Now you can talk about managerial oriented. You can talk about extremely database statistical journals. You can talk about operations research type journals. And, uh, and there's no such thing anymore. Like they asked a physicist one time, oh, what's a physicist? He said, I don't know. There's just so many subsets of physics that you don't know. And I think that's true in a lot of disciplines now. Faculty are free to pursue things that maybe 25 years ago, we thought, well, that's kind of silly, but now seems not so silly and well done. And I think Joe described it really well. There is a always the potential for some of it. And I like Joe's word about looking for Neil and Haystack. My view is the old, how many angels are on the head of a pin research where the contributions are so minor, but they do move it forward a little bit. Uh, and, that, and that leads to other things. So we have in the, I would say the most recent generation of faculty are extremely capable in the subset they have chosen within their field. And when I started, it was probably where we wrote more broadly about the broader interests of the field. And, uh, and I'm not suggesting one's better than the other or not, it's just different. I think there has been a change perhaps in the way we deliver the results of our research. Uh, historically and, and still important today is uh, peer-reviewed research where our results are published in peer-reviewed journals. And uh, many people also think that uh, textbooks represent a form of research, an important form of research, because textbooks influence the way subject matter is taught throughout the country. And so, for instance, Tom Kinnear has written some best-selling textbooks that have been highly influential in the way marketing is taught. Um, so those were the primary delivery mechanisms, the peer-reviewed journals and textbooks. Um, but I, I think one of the biggest changes recently is the other forms of delivery. I looked at a recent email from our uh, research dean, Ed Ross, and he, uh, in discussing research, talked about the number of media sites generated by faculty. He talked about the number of op-eds we produced. He talked about the number of podcasts that have been downloaded. He talked about the number of uh, social media impressions that we have generated. Also, when we started, Joe and I started in 1974 together, and I think Tom arrived in 1975. Is that right, Tom? Uh, yeah, I had been yeah. out four years somewhere else, and 
fortunately got to come back and join you too. <laughs> uh, well, when we started, it was sort of the kiss of death to write a popular book. Uh, if somebody wrote a popular book, they were outcasts. And I think in recent years, the last uh, 10 to 15 years, that has changed dramatically. And uh, people uh, are, are honored for writing uh, bestsellers because you're getting your ideas out to more than just other people in your discipline. So uh, I, I think we're still generating high quality peer reviewed research. But I think the way that research is being disseminated has changed quite a bit over the years. I love that point, George. I, I stopped by Ross a couple of years ago. I don't go there very often. And I was really shocked to see outside the dean's office, I don't know if they were jacket covers of faculty books or something, but the, the, it was faculty books being showcased. And it was all kinds of faculty books from, uh, you know, clearly academic books to very practitioner oriented. And I thought about exactly the point you made, which is early in our tenure, you would have hidden some of those those books from the senior faculty because they would have felt you were pissing away your time. <laughs> I, I think the faculty, George, is still probably slightly mixed on that in that regard. You better not leave behind your academic research while you're doing the other. It's not either or it's you can do both. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. But I'm not around anymore, so I don't know the, the up to date feelings about that. But I remember when you discussed promotions, the the books tend not to be the driving force when people are promoted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there has been this uh, kind of dramatic shift from, you know, faculty are expected more to be thought leaders in their space and engage on social media and podcasts. Um, in addition to changes in the topics and methodologies of business school research and, and the ways that it's shared, like you said, George, through podcasts and social media and op-eds. Um, business school curriculum and education have drastically changed from the first classes taught at Ross in 1924 to now. We've touched on it a little bit, but in your tenures, what are some of the most noticeable changes in the education landscape of business schools? Well, I would suggest Joe touched on it when he talked about what what he said yes to. Uh, <laughs> Action-based learning, MAP, uh, field studies and entrepreneurship. I mean, all of that was unheard of, basically, except for a random crazy professor who did that kind of thing. Uh, and it's now become pervasive of education, I think, in business. Uh, a lot of it was started at Ross, and but it's easy to steal intellectual property. There are no patents on any of that. The uh, the history of, of why Ross was an early mover on action learning was, was kind of interesting. I left Ross for six years and went to work at Cummins, the diesel engine company. And when I came back, to be associate dean and work for Gil Whitaker, I was asked to write up something about what I'd learned in my six years away from the, the business school. There were two big themes in what I wrote. One was, out in the real world, the coin of realm is respect. It's always about respect. You know, are, are you trustworthy? Do, do you make and keep commitments? I said the other big finding for me was that there were a lot of smart people, there were a lot of well-educated, but there were many, many, many fewer people who were effective in the workplace. Honestly, smart, well-educated people were a dime a dozen, but really effective people were much scarcer. And so I talked with Gil about that and he's, well, what do you think you should do about it? 
And because uh, Gil, I have to say, Gil was pretty old school when, when it came to what constituted quality in a business school. And uh, there were a number of us. Uh, certainly, Paul Vanos was an incredible partner in creating uh, the multidisciplinary action projects. But the entire purpose was to enable our students to be better than students for, at other schools when it came to turning knowledge into action and action into results. And, and I do take a really deep satisfaction when I look across the business school landscape and see exactly what Tom said, how pervasive project work is, field work is now, so that students not only get a great education in the classroom, and from the faculty, but they also learn how to turn their knowledge into action and results. And I think Ross really played a leadership role in that regard. I think um, there have been a number of changes in the educational landscape um, beyond technology. When I go, I, I still teach a couple of uh, short courses. And uh, so nowadays, when I walk into the classroom, I have to worry about things like trigger warnings. Uh, am I getting students' pronouns correct? Uh, there's been a much greater concern in recent years about students' physical well-being. That was largely motivated by COVID, but for other reasons too, as well as their mental health. So there's some non-tech issues. But to me, the, the hugest change has been on the technology front. If you walked into a classroom when the school was founded in 1924, the, the classrooms were over in uh, Tappan Hall. I think it's the, one of the oldest buildings on campus. They called it the Little Red Schoolhouse. And then you, 50 years later, when Joe and I and Tom arrived, you walked into a classroom in what we called the tower. Very little had changed. And there were the Greyhound bus classrooms. There were all seats like that. <laughs> it's a great description. Uh, they were larger than the Little Red Schoolhouse. We had many more students, but we were still up there with... Blackboard and chalk, maybe a few people had overhead projectors, but very little had changed in that 50 years. But then move fast forward 50 years from 1974 to 2023, and a huge number of changes, a huge amount of our time in preparing for class nowadays relates to technology. We prepare our PowerPoint decks, we prepare our websites on Canvas, Assignments are posted on Canvas. Articles are posted on Canvas. We have Wolverine Access, where we post our grades and where we message our students. We have huge concerns uh, in the last couple of years about AI. Uh, are we going to allow students to use AI with their assignments? Are we developing specific AI assignments? I just developed an extended reality uh, simulation for use in class. We have massive open online courses where now in my negotiation course, I used to reach 100 students a year, 1.5 million are now taking my uh, online negotiation course. So technology has really changed the name of the game. Uh, I, I would say in my case, at least, I spend more time uh, dealing with technology than on the substance of what I'm teaching. Of course, over the years, I've accumulated a lot of the substance, so I don't have to repeat inventing the wheel, but uh, technology has been a game changer, I think, in the educational landscape. I think that's a great point, George. I remember I developed a couple of simulations myself that were would have been impossible. I remember doing one on 
Lotus one, two, three, that took 45 minutes to run, run it forward a little bit later, written in uh, C plus plus, and it took uh, five seconds to run with the faster chips. So we could just do more things. Uh, I would be amiss if I didn't mention that. I think there were two transformative eras. Joe mentioned Gil. Gil was transformative in the sense that he took us from uh, the old world that I talked about being very descriptive and very to being analytical and requiring research. And the first dean that actually raised money, and I think that was a, a difference between previously. Uh, we were blessed, of course, that... Uh, Gil was followed up by Joe, who took the money raising and the buildings and everything to even a higher level and uh, continued to do great things in terms of that regard. Without, I think without that transformative 20-year period, we might still have chalk and sitting there wondering what the descriptive view of a wholesaler is versus uh, how it fits into a system and all those kinds of things. I mean, I worked for Gil and with Gil, and I worked for Joe and with Joe, and I think those were the, the most transitive 20 years that we had. That doesn't take anything away from what happened after that, because uh, like the crown, I'm going to talk about ancient history, not about more current history. You know, there's one thing I'd like to add, and because I think we have to be very candid here, and that is, uh, I don't know about Ross, although I suspect, but I spent the last 10 years of my career at the University of Illinois before I retired teaching as a, a plain old business school faculty member, and I really loved it and enjoyed it. One thing I did experience that was pretty distressing to me was the magnitude of grade inflation and student expectations about grades. I mean, I would put it this way. For most of my career, Giving a student a B was giving a student a pretty good grade. I found in the last 10 years, and I thought, if you gave a student a B, that person was going to come and see you and complain uh, because the perception was, well, that, that's nearly a failing grade. And, you know, I just think the grade currency has cheapened. And I, I think uh, I understand the dynamics behind it, but I don't think it's a good thing. What do you guys think? I you know, it's it's a little mixed. It, it's cheapened in that we give, there has been great inflation, more, more A's and B's. But on the other hand, back in 1924, when the school was founded, and in 1974, there were no required grade distributions. Hmm. And so nowadays, uh, I have to give, let's say, a certain number of B minuses. And um, that, in, in many ways, uh, sharpens my grading because I I know that uh, I'm going to have some B minus students contacting me and I'm going to have to explain very lucidly why you received a, a, a B minus. So it's good and bad, but we have those two counterbalances, grade inflation on the one hand, but required grade distribution on the other so hand. So George, so is the mandatory uh, grade distribution the case even for elective courses? That's correct. Yes. I didn't know that. Now, that's impressive. I, I didn't know that. So I'm a product of the Ontario school system where we wrote province-wide exams. And if you got a 68 on a course, that was almost an A. <laughs> now the average grade in Ontario coming out for the program I went into in undergrad is 92. And it was about 70 when I went through. Uh, so, I mean, it's preposterous is what it is. And uh, we used to give Ds in the undergrad program, not B minuses, George. And uh, in the MBA program, if you gave a low pass, I got 11 one time and later in my career because I thought they earned it. 
that was like uh, I had committed some mortal sin. Uh, so I think it's a problem, but it's pervasive of the society. It's not just pervasive of Ross. It's not a unique Ross problem. And I, I don't have a solution for it, but I definitely, that's been a trend. Uh, I don't think it takes away from our students. I don't think it takes away from what they accomplish after they leave, but it makes reading a transcript kind of uh, difficult. Yeah, I sort of hesitate to bring it up because, you know, you sound like an old guy when you complain about you know, great inflation. But again, being candid, I, I think it is something that has occurred and I don't think it's a positive. Yeah. Okay. Joe, I am an old guy, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's lots of changes that are good and there are lots that, uh, you know, when you look back, you say, well, I wouldn't do it that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it should be going forward. It belongs to a new generation. It's just nice to say some of the names we've heard all the way back to Peyton and Phelps and Waterman and McCracken and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, there's probably sitting around the school in our time, there were people of that ilk and there are people of that ilk now that we just don't know who they are yet. They haven't shown that yet. I do want to build on George's point about the change in technology. It's not only in the classroom. Uh, I was the dean who... Um, threw out the card catalog in the library and then later the library went away i mean those were really those were really unimaginable changes i was associate dean with you at that senior associate dean with you at that time i remember we we're going to have a little bonfire burning the cards <laughs> exactly and now when you think about I mean, when you think about the way both students and faculty do research compared to the era when, you know, you literally had to go to the physical library, you went to the card catalog, you'd hope and pray that the book was there when you went into the stacks, if you were a doctoral student or you stood there like a supplicant at the desk, you know, waiting for some librarian to either give you a book or tell you, sorry, that was checked out, hadn't been returned. It really is fabulous the way people do research now. I see it all as mostly overwhelmingly positive in terms of what you could do and do. Yeah, yeah. This episode is sponsored by the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Through our podcast, you can connect with the people and experiences that define the Ross way. Check out our other podcasts, such as Business Beyond Usual, an exploration of the full-time MBA experience, Working for the Weekend, a deep dive into the part-time MBA experience, and coming soon, Down to Business, a new interview series with Ross alum in the C-suite, hosted by Dean Sharon Matusik. All podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It does sound like a, a lot of change and development has happened over your 10 years from action-based learning to technological uh, advances and we can kind of see how that it's changed in the the alumni base as well and and how diverse um, not only just from a, an experiential uh, side but in different industries and how they engage in the the business world uh, the Michigan Ross alumni base is ever growing each year Michigan Ross sends hundreds of undergraduate and graduate students into the workforce with the skills they need for success as you have all engaged with students throughout the years, do you have any insight into what defines a Michigan Ross student? Well, I kind of mentioned the points I thought were they're doers who are unentitled, who work really hard, who are smart, I guess I'll add intelligent, and I think very street smart given all the programs that uh, the MA, the MAP program and other things, they, they just, they're not naive about what it takes to be successful to get things done. Yeah, I remember when 
uh, Steve Ross arrived here and we announced his magnificent first $100 million gift. And he talked about the qualities he admired most in Ross students. And there were four words that jumped out at me, uh, hard working, bright, and modest, especially compared with students uh, on the, he, he was comparing them with students in the East Coast. He's comparing uh, George Orwell my alma mater is what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that too. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that that's true today. You know, we've all taught at other institutions. I remember once I was a visiting professor at Stanford and uh, I was able to use, reuse an exam that I used in the fall term here and I used it in the winter term there. And uh, the results, the student results were exactly the same. Uh, but I found that the Michigan students had that uh, modesty that doesn't exist in all coastal schools. You know, as the dean in fundraising, you you meet some of the most successful alumni. And the ones who most impress me and all kinds of alumni impressed me for different reasons. But the ones who most impressed me really were the people who created and built businesses. You know, Bill Davidson was our biggest donor in my era. And people don't realize the nature of the industry he was in. Bill owned one of the world's largest glass companies, and he owned it 100%. And I went around to him to these various float glass plants in Eastern Europe and Israel and, and Toledo and so on. And he explained to me that as a glass manufacturer, you're exactly like a farmer. You produce your crop, in that case, glass for a farmer, wheat, corn, beans, whatever. And you have zero control over the world price of what you're producing. And so Bill, 100% owner of Guardian, would spend hundreds of millions of dollars building a float glass plant. And by the way, once it's up and running, you never shut it down. If the world price goes low and you're producing glass at a loss, you just break it up at the finished end and feed it back in at the raw material end because it's so difficult and takes months and months to get that production process up and running. And I admire guts like that. I admire risk-taking. Those are the people who build enterprises, create jobs, and in that way serve all the rest of us. And there were a lot of them. I think about Barnett Helsberg, whose father died very young. And Barnett in his 20s took over the family jewelry business and fast forward 40 or 50 years later, sold it to Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, it was that good a company. And I think, you know, I think about non-alumni like Sam Zell. Sam was not a business school graduate. <laughs> he was an LSNA grad and a law school grad, but he really adopted the business school because he understood and believed deeply in the value of business and business education. And he desperately wanted business schools, which were pretty oriented toward preparing the next generation of General Motors management. He wanted them, the business schools, to foster entrepreneurship. And so he, um, with the widow of his longtime partner, Bob Lurie, gave us $10 million to get started. Tom was the first director and longtime director and did such a fantastic job that much, much more money was forthcoming because Sam loved what Tom did. So I sort of want to uh, give a shout out to our alumni who who create enterprises 
take risks and employ the rest of us and create wealth. Yeah, if I can tag on to what Joe said, uh, I mean, the names are great names. There, there are some of our alums who went and did things in the nonprofit area. The, the most nonpartisan, well-respected media in the state of Michigan now is something called Bridge. And uh, John Beto was one of our students. He was one of the co-founders and was president of it for a very long time. They started with nothing. And now they have reporters everywhere and they're jealously nonpartisan and every, everything else isn't. Or the person who ran the, some museums were our alums. They're just, you can go on and on and on about, uh, I think back to another person who was one of my students in the 70s, who was a very successful senior executive at Procter & Gamble, who now is heading a company looking for a cure for cancer. You know, maybe uh, he starts something now, maybe 20 years from now, they find something. But, you know, just the willingness to keep pressing ahead and do things that are innovative and uh, they're doers. I mean, that's I keep coming back to that word. And didn't we, have, didn't we have an alum who, um, after a successful uh, business career, decided that uh, Michigan needed a nerd to be governor? And he started with zero name recognition and became governor. Rick Snyder, my former student, who... I, I would argue, despite the partisan controversies, was probably the most effective governor in terms of taking over a state with a horrible economy and getting it to be in a good state. I think it's awesome that one of our graduates cared enough about the welfare of the state of Michigan to start with zero name recognition and become governor. Way to go, Rip. And he did not need to do it to build his fortune. Yeah. He already made his fortune and as chief executive officer of Gateway Computer. There's all sorts of stories like that, and George has probably got a few others that would be interesting. Well, no, I think you you all are hitting the nail on the head. And in fact, uh, I recently discovered that written into the Ross School bylaws adopted by the regents is that we it's important at Ross to include instruction that links business leadership to the needs of the community. And I think that's the thing that has intrigued me most about our alums. And we had bylaws, George, so that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't either. We <laughs> did it anyway. The, the regents have adopted these bylaws. And um, I see this time and again when looking at our alums who have been very successful in business. There was a family called the Williamson family that funded my chair at Ross. And very successful in business. I, I think, uh, Joe, you and Tom are both sitting in the Naples area. And last year, I visited Bud Williamson, the patriarch of the family in Naples. We had a long conversation. Sadly, Bud passed away six months after that. But he was invigorated by a project that he was working on. Here's a man in his 90s, very enthusiastic about something uh, he was developing near Youngstown, Ohio, called the Williamson Innovation Park. And the goal was to encourage uh, students ranging from kindergarten through college to engage in scientific research, uh, research on drones, on agriculture, etc. So he donated a couple of hundred acres in developing this innovation park. Um, that's the kind of graduate I think of uh, when I think of a Ross alum. I was one of the big supporters of Zell Lurie. He and uh, Paul Rettlinger, who were classmates at Michigan, 
put a lot of money into supporting students' outreach projects at Zellery. He was one of the founders of the cellular network systems. He owned the cellular network in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, and into Ohio and other places. But he always came to the Zellery Advisory Board meetings until he was about 90. I mean, he was just great, classic entrepreneur, smart, yep. and generous. Yeah, but and, and also very community-oriented. Right. Enthusiastic about supporting the community. Actually, I think he came because he wanted to party with Paul Brettlinger, but that's... <laughs> It's, it's, uh, some says it's unfair to name a whole bunch of names because there, there's literally thousands of people who would deserve to have their names said out loud. And so in honor of all of them, there are a lot of them out there and they're great and done a lot of good things. Well, thank you so much for, for your insights and thank you for sharing stories of alumni that you've engaged with. Uh, finally, each of you has had an immense influence on the Ross community throughout your tenures. Do you have any advice for future generations of Ross students, professors, and administrators? Well, I have two. The first one is uh, what Gil Whitaker said when he left the deanship to go become provost. Gil was a man of few words. And what he said at the faculty dinner was, build a better faculty. He didn't mean there was anything wrong with our faculty. What he meant was, that the heart and soul of any academic organization is the faculty. The faculty are the magnet for everything else. And it's the quality of the faculty that determines the quality of the thinking, the quality of the research, the quality of the teaching, the quality of the program. So that was very wise in Gill's part, and I would pass that along. That's timeless advice. The other thing I would say to everybody, to students, faculty, administrators, is just make a positive difference in the world. You never have any idea if your positive difference is going to be highly consequential and affect millions or whether it's going to be small scale and affect just a few people, but in a significant way. But I think eventually when you hang it up, if you can look back and say, yeah, you know, I do think I made a positive difference in the world. You'll have done Ross proud. Joe, Joe has stated that more eloquently than I can, but I, I agree with him entirely. And I, I would simply summarize it as uh, Ross is a place with a tremendous number of opportunities. If you want to get involved in administration, if you want to have a stellar teaching career, if you want to do first-rate research, um, as a student, you're going to be interacting with the best and brightest students in the world. And um, take advantage of the opportunities. Some opportunities are gonna fall out of the sky at Ross. You're not gonna anticipate them. And I hope that you will uh, seriously consider uh, saying yes. I, I like Joe's presumption of yes as an administrator. If you can bring that into your personal life, uh, say yes to a lot of what seem to be risky opportunities because you're gonna have a, a a wonderful set of opportunities at Ross. Well, it's hard to add to two really articulate statements. My, I guess, summary would be uh, honor Ross's past. No, learn about it, honor it. Enjoy the present because it's probably fantastic now, still like it was for us, and build a better future. Make it a better place than you found it. And P.S., watch out for the forces of darkness because not every political... So wind in the university likes business schools. You always have to have a good, strong dean who uh, will fight for it, and faculty too. 
Excellent. Well, what what a way to end. Uh, thank you all so much. Go blue. Uh, that's all for us here at the Business and Society podcast. I would like to thank our guests, George Seidel, Tom Kinnear, and Joe White for sharing their time and expertise. This episode was made in partnership with Michigan Ross and Michigan News. Make sure to check out the show notes for more details on topics, links to research, and more. Thank you for listening to a Michigan Ross podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Jeff Karub and JT Godfrey, audio engineering and editing by Jonah Brockman, and theme music Lost Einsteins by Jeff Karub. Stay connected by following our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more, read full articles of the podcast at www.michiganross.umich.edu backslash news.